Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 5 from our lecture series on Russia's New Martyrs and the Catacomb Church. The topic of today's lesson is The Life and Witness of the New Martyrs, 1917-1927. This podcast was originally recorded in June of 2021. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. Welcome everybody back to our lessons, our series of lectures, 10 lectures on the new martyrs of Russia, the Catacomb Church, a type of the end times. Glad that you are joining us tonight. We're going to be looking at the life and witness of the new martyrs from the onslaught of the persecution in 1917 up until about 1927. Of course, we're only going to be scratching the surface. We're only going to be looking at a sampling of Lives of the Saints, and indeed excerpts and some amazing stories from the lives of the new martyrs. So it goes without saying, and I'll be repeating that probably several times tonight, that this is an introduction. This is a primer, so to speak, to get you, help you to begin having as a part of your daily spiritual food, lives of the new martyrs, to incorporate that into your reading to incorporate it into your icon corner, to incorporate it into your orthodox outlook, your orthodox formula, your orthodox consciousness. So this is all I can do in these short moments that we have together. It's up to each one of us then to take that and to, to further live with the new martyrs in our lives as they are such an important inspiration and example for us as we move forward. And this is exactly... I think how the church has always seen the martyrs going back into the early church. We, we put them forward for the sake of the salvation of the new generation of Christians that we might imitate them. So tonight, again, we're looking at just a portion, just a sampling of the lives up until about uh, 1927. I mean, it's not going to uh, mean we're going to be looking at also at 26, 25, 34. It'll just be a sampling in that first 10 years, because we split our lectures up into two sections, basically, uh, pre-Sergianism and Catacomb Church, and then post-Sergianism and Catacomb Church. So then we'll go into the post-declaration uh, time, which definitely changes things uh, in, in many ways uh, for uh, the new martyrs and what they're facing. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's say our prayers. Let's dive in. And we've got some wonderful material to present. Uh, some of it, if you're already an avid reader of the lives of the new saint, uh, new martyrs, you've, put, you've probably seen some of the material I'm going to present. Uh, but for, all, for most of us, unfortunately, and I'll talk about that in a second, we don't have familiarity with the new martyrs for the most part in the West. And that's something interesting. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's say our prayers and call upon the help of our the Holy Trinity, to enlighten us. And this is, uh, of course, the Treparium for the Feast, what we are in the midst of this whole week, fast-free week for the Church after the great Feast of, of Pentecost. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Bless also fear of thy blessed commandments to travel beyond all kind of desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting and holy living life, creating spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Elogito si Christeo, Theo Simon, O Pansophus, Tu salis sana dixas, Cata pemsas aftis to pnema, To agion jedi afton, Tinikumenis aginemsas, Filantrope doxa, Amen. Uh, so I want to say a word before we get into the some of the examples and excerpts from the lives of the saints that we're going to cover tonight. Uh, just the 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 dearth of for most Orthodox Christians, at least in the English speaking world, uh, certainly there's been some wonderful material that's come out, no doubt, and we're we're indebted to certain. Publishing sources like St. Herman of Alaska Brotherhood would probably be the first in the list, but others as well that have come out with the lives of the, of the new martyrs all these throughout these, these years, both before and, the, and after the fall of communism. St. <clears throat> Vladimir Seminary Press with a few titles as well, important titles, and other presses, which I'm not, I'm leaving out a lot. So don't, uh, hope nobody takes it the wrong way. I'm not, my, my intention is not to try to list every publishing house. There's plenty of material out there, but there's also for one of the reasons, not a lot, doesn't seem to be a lot of focus uh, uh, beyond that in the life of the church from the pastors, from the arch pastors and all the rest. And it's such a shame because as we're seeing, as we're going to see tonight, we're seeing through this series, their lessons and their examples are extremely valuable and they bring us back to the ancient church. We're going to see examples tonight that you, if you change the time and date, you would say this is exactly uh, epitomizes what the church was going through in the first 300 years with uh, the uh, pagan Roman Empire. And just uh, amazing events uh, and interventions of God's providence and the grace of God in the lives of these saints. Uh, beyond that, though, the lessons of how to deal with temptations and uh, the confession of the faith and martyrdom uh, are just so invaluable. So again, this is just scratching the surface. There are volumes of material there. God willing, uh, they'll be circulating again. Some of them are out of print, out of print like the Russia's Catacomb Saints. Uh, we're hoping that will be back in circulation as well as other volumes that have been produced. Uh, it, in, I, as, as one who's presenting this material, I feel like I'm many times... In a, it, not equipped to properly present it because I feel like there's so much more that I discover and then there's more that I'm still uh, looking and, and, and finding again and again. So a lot of just amazing material. So let's get into that. Let's, uh, let's begin 
chronologically with the first higher martyr, the first, well, bishop martyr. And some of these are well-known, some of them are not. I feel like I needed to at least present some that are well-known. A lot of what we're going to present tonight is not uh, the most well-known saints that have been uh, have become martyrs in the church in the, in the 20s. Um, Metropolitan Vladimir, of course, from Viev, Kiev, the one of the most prominent because he was the first. Uh, we're going to just touch on some of these early martyrs, and then we'll go we'll go further on. And, and we just again, we just selected a few because there's very quite a, quite a lot of material, and we can't really get into all of it. And I've chosen to focus a little bit also about some of the content of the of uh, of the martyrs because it's really relevant to our our situation today. Uh, so. This first martyr, let's read and then we'll comment. One of the first martyrs of this new period is Metropolitan Vladimir of Kiev. He was brutally killed in 1918. And this was the uh, shocked, the really shocked the whole uh, of Russia, the way, the brutal uh, barbarian way in which he was martyred. Five armed soldiers led by a sailor came to the Kiev caves Lavra, where the Metropolitan lived on the evening of January 25th, 1918. The most disturbing thing is that the saint was betrayed by some of his own inner circle, according to this source. And I don't know if this is, I hope this is accurate, but it's hard for me to verify. Uh, monks of the Lavra, who were dissatisfied with their archpastor, encouraged by Archbishop Alexei, started a rumor that the Metropolitan had kept money from the churches in Kiev. And the soldiers demanded that that the uh, Vladika uh, returned the money. They tortured Vladika, but did not obtain any results. So they took him outside the walls of the Lavra to shoot him. Before his death, Metropolitan Vladimir blessed the murderers crosswise with his hands, saying, the Lord bless you and forgive you. No sooner had he lowered his hands than three shots killed him. The furious people these soldiers hit and stabbed the motionless body with rifle butts for a long time. This shows a lot of these martyrdoms uh, actually reveal the, the the mania, the demonic mania that had that had possessed that possessed some of these uh, uh, these murderers, and the demonic nature of the Bolshevik revolution, uh, which really. You know, many, for the most part, initially, the Russian people could not have imagined what awaited them. They could not have imagined the barbarity of the uh, of the Bolsheviks. Uh, they didn't expect, I think, initially any of that. Of course, very quickly, as we saw in previous sessions, um, St. Tikhon and others understood and anathematized and excommunicated the perpetrators. But it was... An amazing, a massive shock to the to the people of Russia to see their archpastors and pastors and priests being uh, murdered by this this band uh, that had taken power in in Russia, uh, and so say, Vladimir is the first of all these, and the, is commemorated uh, especially because of that. In fact, the feast of uh, the commemoration of the new martyrs uh, was. Uh, was put on the date closer to the 25th, so uh, the Sunday closer to the 25th. So, and so it really begins uh, uh, here, and the church has recognized that uh, by putting the feast 
of the of the new martyrs on the Sunday closes. We also have two proto martyrs in their own way uh, in the clergy, uh, the lower clergy, the priests. Uh, one of them, a missionary to America, who you probably have heard of or known if you're in America, uh, <clears throat> Father John Couture, and he is the a missionary to America and the first higher martyr of the Bolshevik yoke. On October 31st, 1917, so we're just talking days after the revolution, uh, he entered Tsarkoi uh, Selo in force. The, the Bolsheviks entered and arrested Father John. He was taken by the Bolsheviks out of town where he was summarily shot. By this act, Father John became the proto hire martyr of the Bolshevik Revolution and the Soviet yoke. Um, you know, the, the mindlessness of the, of the murder really was calculated in order to intimidate a lot of these earlier initial uh, acts of violence. And we also have um, Father uh, St. Piotr, uh, the first priest to die at the hands of the military atheist government in Petrograd. Um, he stood up for women who were abused uh, by the, the Red Army. And, and he was on the doorstep of the diocese administration office, and he was shot in the head. Father Peter was survived by a wife and seven children. He was the f 55 at the time of his death. So there's just so many examples of this. We're just giving you a quick sampling of the breadth of martyrs. We have of all types, all backgrounds, uh, women martyrs, uh, hierarchs, uh, nuns, monks. We also have examples of tremendous uh, spiritual heights and love of enemies. And we saw that with St. Vladimir. We also see this in the life of the higher martyr Makarios, Bishop of Oral and Svetsk. Higher martyr Makarios and 14 other people were taken to a deserted place near Smolensk in 1918, where they were placed with their backs to a freshly dug grave. The condemned people were shot in a row, and Vladika was the last of them. And all the time, as they were being shot, he was praying with a prayer rope in hand, the Jesus prayer, and he blessed everyone saying, Irini Pasi, go in peace. When it was his turn, the Red Army soldier hesitated. Seeing fear in the executioner's eyes, Vladika said, my son, may not your heart be troubled, but do the will of the one who sent you. Very much reminiscent of ancient martyrs in his stance. Soon after, the soldier, an ordinary peasant, appeared at a hospital for the mentally retarded. Every night, he saw the murdered saint blessing him. I suppose we have killed a holy man, he said. Otherwise, how could he know that my heart sank before he was about to kill him? But he did, not, he did know, and he blessed me out of compassion. And now he comes to me out of compassion and blesses me to show that he's not angry. But I know that my sin cannot be forgiven. I do not like God's world anymore. I do not deserve to live. I do not want to, lo to live were the words of this pitiful killer. Of course, he can be forgiven. That's the gospel. But the poor man had fallen into despair because of his sin. And this is, uh, you know, these are the kind of unbelievable stances uh, which reveal the depth of the spiritual life of these new martyrs. Because as we know, the characteristic, the number one characteristic, according to many saints, including St. Siloan the Athenite, 
of a Christian is to love our enemy, to love our enemy, and to bless those who curse us, and to forgive all. This is what it means to be a Christian. So this is the great example of the new martyrs, including the higher martyr, Makarios. This is a uh, text we actually cited in our Orthodox Survival Course last August. I want to bring it back. I want to present it to everybody in the, the larger crowd that we have in these lectures because he, it is such an important witness. This, so this is 1922, 1923. We have now the persecution of the Bolsheviks in terms of taking church property, going into the churches, invading the churches, and brutally um, uh, killing and taking the property from the churches. And St. Hermogenes stands up and confesses, and it really is worthwhile going to, and reading his full life uh, online. If you put in his name, uh, should come up very quickly and easily. There's two versions or three versions, different sites. You can find his whole life because he has a long excerpt of his uh, what he said, what he taught, and what he wrote down and passed out to people. So he, he actually, this is an excerpt from a pamphlet that was passed out. And he says the following, which is so attractive for us today, because he's talking about the holy things and the holy temple and the state and the people outside of the faith coming in and disturbing the peace of the holy temple and the holy things. Brother Christians, raise your voices in defense of the church's apostolic faith, the holy things of the church, the church's heritage. Defend your right to believe and confess your faith as you learned it in days of old, as you were taught it by the holy apostles, the holy martyrs, the God-wise fathers of the church, the Christian ascetics. Take care of the holiness of your souls, the freedom of your consciences. Say loudly that you have been accustomed to pray and save yourselves in the churches. That the holy things of the church are dearer to you than life itself. That without them, salvation is impossible. Think about all this, what he's saying and put it in our own context. I think it's very powerful. Now, no power can demand from you that which is against your faith, your religious conscience. We must obey God rather than men, said the Holy Apostle. So this is the term, this is the phrase that we heard at the beginning of the COVID uh, outbreak last year. We heard that quite a bit among teachers here in Greece. Uh, what is the res proper response? Is it, is it Romans 13, obey the, the, the authorities above you? Or is it the apostles before the Jews who were telling them not to preach? And they said, no, we must obey God rather than men. And here he quotes the Apostle Peter, the, the, from the Acts of the Apostles, in this context, where you have the state in, in, uh, intruding in the church and wanting to take the holy things, wanting to destroy the holy things or sell the holy things. Um, that is what we too must say, he says. The apostles joyfully suffered for the faith, but you also ready for sacrifice. Be you also ready for sacrifice. For Padvig, Padvig is ascetic struggle. And remember that physical arms are powerless against those who arm themselves with the powerful faith in Christ. Faith moves mountains. The faith of the Christians has conquered the pagan boldness. He's quoting the, uh, the hymnography of the church, I think. May your faith be bold and courageous. Christ destroyed Hades. He will also destroy the snares of the enemies of our church. 
Believe, and the enemy will flee from before your face. Stand in defense of your faith, and with firm hope say, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. And this is the this is the, cora- the courageous dance of the new martyrs and the saints and the bishops, say Tikhon, before the Bolshevik uh, cunning and, 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 and uh, uh, barbaric uh, attempt to kill and maim and steal, basically, from the church. Because that's what, it, that's, that's what it came down to. There was no virtue in what they were doing. The church had volunteered and, and, and offered money, uh, and the, there was no interest in, in that because the, their goal was to destroy and to undermine and to kill, if possible, many. As, as Lenin said, as we saw in pre- previous lessons, Lenin said, opportunity to kill as many Catholics, people and priests and Catholics as possible. So this is, the, this is the response of the church when the holy things, who he, which he says, are more dear to you than your life itself. For without them, salvation is impossible. Without the mysteries of the church, without the holy temple and entering in and praying and, and participating in the holy mysteries, salvation is impossible. Salvation is not, cannot be an intellectual event. It's not just an ascent of belief. It's a union. And that union, where does it take place? In the most intimate place on the face of the earth, in the divine liturgy, in when the, the Holy Spirit descends and we have access to uh, Father, we have access to uh, communion in Christ, in uh, with the Holy Trinity through Christ. So this is the uh, this is a tremendous witness. Now, after this witness, our saint, uh, the, the life of the saint has the following, which I think is very instructive. Flavica blessed the distribution of this leaflet, which we just quoted from, and the next day he heard that the authorities were in a rage because of it. On April 11th, a threatening article against him was published in a local newspaper. And he was told by those close to him that something was being planned against him. But Vladika was always, as always, joyful and paid no attention to the Bolshevik spite. Uh, For those who are totally new, Vladika is basically translated as master. It's a term used for the father, the father figure, the bishop of the community, of the diocese. Uh, It's out of respect. Uh, So... Uh, it's the Russian version of uh, despota or your grace, I guess, would be the English version um, or something like that. So uh, at 11 o'clock on April 13th, Latvian Bolsheviks carried out a search in Vladika's residence, mocked the holy things and even lifted up the altar, but did not find him. On Lazarus Saturday, the authorities told Vladika that they didn't want to arrest him just to interrogate him. And they would put that off until the Monday after the feast. And they demanded that he keep quiet about the search they had carried out. Vladika refused to keep quiet and said he did not believe them. And at the all-night vigil for the feast, he said, Whatever they say or do against me, let God be their judge. I forgave them and forgive them now. And once more, I declare that my hierarchical activity is alien to all politics. My politics is faith in the salvation of the souls of believers. My platform is prayer. And then I, Vladika said, I do not expect clemency from them. They will kill me. More than that, they will torture me. And I am ready. I'm ready even now. I do not fear for myself. I do not sorrow for myself. I sorrow for the city 
I fear for the inhabitants. What will they do with them? And this is the great example of the shepherd for the sheep. He doesn't care about himself. He gives his life for the sheep. He cares about the sheep. What will they do to the sheep? These, these wolves who are coming to tear apart uh, the sheep and, the, and destroy the sheepfold. Uh, so this is the stance, again, a great example of the stance of what a true bishop, a true hierarch, a true priest, a true leader, how he uh, encounters the enemy. Uh, uh, we have so much of weak worldly diplomacy in the church today. We think bishop's role is to be a diplomat, first and foremost. Is there aspects of diplomacy only if you understand it in terms of pastoral care for the flock? Yes. If you understand it in, in a principleless, truthless uh, diplomacy that you see between states, that it's all about power and agreements and all the rest, then obviously no. Uh, that is foreign to the bishop. The bishop is a shepherd. He's not a diplomat. He's not, uh, he's not trying to negotiate with the world. Uh, he stands and confesses the truth to the world and calls all, as Christ did, to repentance. So this is such an important example for us. And we need to remember this when we're facing uh, similar, uh, uh, similar context. Uh, when they're coming to destroy or shut down or uh, pervert the life of the church today. This should have been our, an example that we heard presented to our people, our clergy, throughout the whole COVID insanity. When places like California were telling us what we can do in the church, how many people we can have, uh, and all the rest. Some people might say, well, Father, but this was a health crisis. Well, was it really? Are you sure about that? Are you sure it was really a health crisis? We have so much material now to show us we have that there were so many lies said about this whole thing from the beginning, from where it, the origins of it until today. Uh, it's not that simple. It's never that simple. And there's a, so much um, encroachment, totalitarian encroachment in um in, in behind and using this supposed pandemic against the church. Now we're going to move on to another aspect of the life of St. Hermogenes. This is a video. We're very grateful and indebted to our, our brother and our, our co-struggler and uh, a servant of the church uh, who runs the Gregory De Capoliti uh, YouTube channel. He's produced a lot of material. We're going to be using some of it tonight. So if you haven't been there, you don't know that, you're not a subscriber, you need to be a subscriber, you need to go to that uh, YouTube channel, Gregory Decapoliti, D-C-A-P-O-L-I-T-E. Uh, and all the videos you're going to see tonight are from there, and we're going to comment on them uh, after we, uh, as, as we go through. But um, they're very well done, and they present some material you really can't find uh, very easily anywhere else. So this is... Uh, uh, Highly recommended that you become a subscriber over at his site. So let's let's watch this and we'll um, comment on. So Bosquare, he was the metropolitan, and the new martyrs were taken. Oh, 
After Patriarch Tikhon sanctioned the religious procession with icons and church banners, Bishop Hermogenes followed suit in Tobolsk on the eve of the day appointed for this. The bishop received orders to stop the procession under threat of being arrested. The next day, disregarding the orders, the bishop celebrated the liturgy as usual and officiated at a special public prayer in the town's Kremlin. Everyone knew that the church procession was forbidden, but the bells tolled and the bishop with the clergy, the holy crosses and banners came out of the cathedral and the procession began. Huge crowds streamed along the Kremlin wall singing, Save O Lord, thy people. So we sing and chant every night up to the end of this lecture. The Kremlin of Tobolsk, situated on an elevation, stands higher than the town. From the wall, one could see clearly the house where the Tsar and his family were imprisoned. The royal captives, standing near the windows, watched the procession. The procession stopped at a point from where the house could be seen, and the people sang to thee, O Lord. The bishop drew close to the edge of the wall and stood alone, overlooking all Tobosk, with a wooden cross in his hands. Raising the cross high above, he blessed the imperial family. St. Hermogenes was soon arrested, and after spending some time incarcerated in Ekaterinburg, he was sent back to Tobolsk for his trial. In the meantime, the city was taken by the Siberian White Army. The Red Guards escaped on a streamer in which was St. Hermogenes and other prisoners. The Reds, before leaving the ship, took their prisoners out on the deck and ordered them to take off their upper clothing and shoes. If anyone seemed too slow, his clothes were torn off. The undressed men, under a shower of jeers and rude jokes from the guards, were bound and thrown one by one into the river tour where they drowned. St. Hermogenes prayed for his torturers and blessed them. With obscene swearing, accompanied by blows, the guards tore off the bishop's riasan and cassock and pinioned his arms behind his back. The bishop continued to pray aloud. And the commissar shouted the order, hold his jaw. A fist blow to the face silenced the old bishop's prayers. And then an 80-pound rock was tied to his bound hands. The red guards then grabbed the bishop and after several swings to and fro, roughly threw him into the river. There we have his holy prayers. And this is St. Hermogenes on the end times. So we're going to actually quote him and another great saint of the time for our benefit here. During the times of Antichrist, the place of idols will be taken by those in power through the promotion of worldly wisdom and will demand worship for themselves. Anyone who will obey the laws of civil society of those times, although without directly clashing with the faith, he or she will be a partaker in the dominion of Antichrist. This is when the separation of the good and the bad will begin the separation of those who will do the will of God from the servants of Antichrist. The true believers in the kingdom of Antichrist, the end time society, will live in solitude, away from the world. They will not obey any laws of the civic society. Those who recognize and obey the laws of society, even unwillingly, they shall be sharers in the kingdom of Antichrist and will be cast off from God. During the reign of Antichrist, the evil mind will act politically without touching people's faith brutally. They will be given equal rights. All the sects will have free freedom, even though eventually the Antichrist will dismiss all sects and all religions. The Antichrist will act with morality and seek to persuade the hurt and hurt souls 
towards spiritual death. The right to preach and to legally perform the truth services will be given only to those who obey the laws and do not violate the discipline. Places of worship will be under strict supervision by the same earthly authority that has placed itself as the head of the church instead of Christ and will not serve Christ but the Antichrist. But blinded Christians will not notice anything, although this could be understood even by a little child. The dominion of Antichrist will therefore take all under strict control to know who is obedient and who is not. As Father Lavrenti, now saint of Chernigov, wrote, Then they will get you to the church by force. However, some will not be persecuted from the beginning to keep the appearances of freedom of conscience. Only toward the end, in those fallen days, when all will find themselves annihilated into the kingdom of Babylon and the wrath of God will be close, orders will be given out that all those who rebel against humanity and against authority be eliminated, just like they were ordinary criminals. And all their people shall receive these measures with enthusiasm. Prophetic words of our Father among the saints, Hermogenes. So we will revisit those words undoubtedly in the fall when we talk about the end times and the Antichrist in our analysis of the book of Revelation. So this is a this is a snapshot. Put yourself there on the walls of the Kremlin in Tobolsk as the people processed illegally and the state threatened and then carried out the execution of many of the leaders. And the just before one year, the emperor of the entire uh, empire, the, the czar, is now a criminal in prison. I mean, it's. Unbelievable the 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 drama of that of the life at the time. How many people? I think I would have been in, in, continually in, dis, in in dismay and in, in in disbelief at the turn of events and the absolute uh, overturning of the old order. Uh, and there's we're not going to get into it tonight, but it's worth your time. A lecture or a homily by St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco, St. John Maximovich, on the royal new martyrs, the fall and the uh, martyrdom at the hands of the Bolsheviks and what that means, what that means for the church, what it means for uh, our time. And they, the saints, St. John and others, saw in that the end of the Roman Empire period, the old order, and the beginning of the times that would lead to Antichrist, the rise of Antichrist, the person of Antichrist eventually. Um, so it's worth our time, but we're not going to be able to get to it tonight, unfortunately, because we're looking mainly at the lines of the saints. So this is another martyr of the day. We're looking mostly at the early 1917, 18, 19, 20, 22. This is the time period that we're focusing on. Um, so... We have St. Margaret of Menzelinsk, and this is a very interesting uh, little excerpt from the life. Mother Margaret was the abbess of the prophet Elijah Monastery in Menzelinsk, Kazan Diocese, in the late summer of 1918. Uh, the white armies left Kazan and the neighboring towns, and Mother Margaret decided not to remain in the power of the Bolsheviks. She was at the wharf preparing to leave when St. Nicholas appeared to her and said, why are you running from your crown? 
Stunned by the vision, Abbess Margaret returned to the monastery and told the monastery priest about what had happened. And sensing that she would soon have to suffer for the faith, she asked for her coffin to be prepared in advance and that she should be buried on the very day of her death after the burial service. The next day, Abbess Margaret was arrested as a counter-revolutionary. The next day, they dragged her out onto the porch of the church during the service. And after refusing her request to commune of the Holy Mysteries, they shot her. Immediately after the burial service, the sisters of the monastery buried her behind the altar of the church where she had been shot. It was only the next day that the abbot's, abbess's request to be buried on the very day of her death, which seemed very strange at first to the priest, became comprehensible. For the same Czechist who had shot Abbas Margaret brought a Muslim mullah to be shot, wishing to bury him in one grave with the Orthodox superior of the monastery. However, since she had already been buried, they could not do this and took the mullah somewhere else. A great Russian elder, St. Ambrose of Optina, it seems, has prophesied, had prophesied about this monastery, that under one superior, they would build a church, another would be a martyr, and under a third, the bells would fall. The prophecy was fulfilled. Abbess Margaret became a martyr, and under the last superior, they removed the bells from the church and closed the monastery. In the 1970s, near the main church of the Menzelinsky Monastery, which was closed at the time, this is now 40, 50 years later, they decided to take a, a dig a hole behind the very altar. Suddenly, they came upon a coffin. In it were the incorrupt relics of Abbess Margaret and with a cross on her breast. They did not disturb the coffin, but filled in the grave and found another place for the hole. Uh, so we have an incorrupt, actually, many of these martyrs turned out to be incorrupt. We're going to hear another story tonight about incorrupt bishop who was uh, shot and, and, and died. But it's interesting here, the, um, the, 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 the cunning and the, the demonic spirit that wanted to defile the monastery to to essentially bring a, a um, uh, the spirit of syncretism and, and, and indifference to truth, even in the grave of the abbess of the monastery, even that, if it would be possible. Uh, of course, the Bolsheviks could care less about religion, probably didn't make much distinction, but and it's also amazing the enlightenment from God that she had to know and, and, and the sisters who were obedient. So all of that. And what, one of the lessons here from this story, I think, is that we have to trust implicitly the will of God and the providence of God and not doubt and not doubt. So she was obedient to the appearance of the saint. And look how God provided for everything step by step immediately. It was all laid out. Is there a doubt that God had arranged the time of her repose and her, her departure from this world? Absolutely not. No doubt whatsoever. God arranged everything for her to come in and, and to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, one day she prepares the coffin. The next day she's a martyr. And uh, the very day she's buried. And who, how could she? Of course, she had no idea that this was weighing her 
as she was departing uh, with the white armies. Um, and she went back to her martyrdom. Amazing, amazing the providence of God for those who love him. Now we're going to look at several things. It was the end of the life of St. Anatolius of Optina, one of the, the last great elders. You see the icon here of the many elders of Optina. They're all been glorified by the church today. And he is one, he's the last, basically, uh, or with St. Nectarios. He's the, the two of them are the last uh, of the um, great elders of Optina. Um, well, uh, three actually lived after the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. And he has. A tremendous prophecy or vision of the future of the church. We're going to we're going to recount that tonight because uh, it's so valuable. But let's look at how he ended his life. Now he's one of the, uh, as we said, one of the elders. Now he's fulfilling his ministry of eldership up until that fateful year of 1917. In this year, the prophecies of previous elders were fulfilled. It's a little minor detail, but it's really important. You see how the church lived by the prophecies of the elders, how the church, uh, the God came to his holy ones, his enlightened elders to, in, to, to, to guide the people through prophetic, the prophetic word for the days ahead. Think about that. Think about our time today in this church. Do we have that? Do we have that role? Well, certainly we do. We have elders. We have the prophetic utterances of elders who just reposed in the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and there are, a few bishops who are speaking up and waiting for the fulfillment of those prophecies, just like the elders in Optina, the fulfillment of the prophecies of previous elders. And there are unfortunately many Orthodox Christians who have no sense of that providential care of God through his saints in every age. And therefore they are more easily um, shaken by the events of the world. They more, they're more easily doubting the providence of God in their life. So it's not at all minor. In, throughout church history, throughout the Old Testament, God had his prophets and he spoke through them to the people of God and he guided them. It's no different today. In this year, the prophecies of the previous elders were fulfilled. Monasteries were, to, were closed down and monks imprisoned. Shortly thereafter, the elder was arrested, tormented, and his beard and hair were shaved off or cut. He was released and went back to the monastery, being exhausted and looking barely alive. This is 1918, 1917, 18. He was released and went back. He crossed the threshold of his cell, crossing it and saying, Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, O God. It reminds you of St. John of Chrysostom, who was in exile and said, Glory to God for all things. This is the stance of the saints. They don't doubt anything. Whatever comes about, this is a terrible thing to go through. Torturing, humiliation, and much more, which probably is not privy to us or not written down. So he said, glory to God, though. He didn't say, where are they? Why have they, thou forsaken me? He didn't say that. Uh, he said, glory to God. God's will be done. Uh, in 1921, when the elder was quite infirm, Abbot Isaac suggested that the elder take the great schema. Now, in Russia, they have a little different than in Mount Athos. The great schema is taken very late in life. They have a small schema and a great schema. And Mount Athos is just one schema and is taken after a trial of the novitiate. 
Uh, there's not a great schema. So this is a Russian practice, and it's to to stress that the monastic who is advanced in years and who is totally now looking into heaven, looking toward the heavenly, um, it's a sign that they've arrived now and they can take the great schema. And their ascetic life is even more intense and more reclusive and all the rest. He did the during, he did, he did. And during the service, he was so weak that he could barely hold a candle. There were more accusations against the monastery as the new government wanted to close it down for being a, quote, hotbed of counter-revolutionary activity. In 1922, this is three years later now, they again came to arrest the elder. He asked them to be given 24 hours in which to prepare, and this they allowed. They came back the next day and found him reposed, lying in his coffin in the middle of his cell. The body of Elder Anatolios was buried next to that of Elder Makarios, whose relics were then found to be incorruptible, the relics of St. Anatolios. So, um, or I might be wrong, but I think this is referring to St. Anatolios, although the way that the, the sentence here has it, I'd have to look in other versions, could be Elder Makarios, whose relics were incorruptible. I'm not sure. Um, the, uh, this great elder has bequeathed to the church the following Prophecy of Future Lawlessness. If you haven't read this, I'm going to read it now, but it's worth downloading, having, and having in mind. It's a prophetic text. Um, he continues in the, the Optin uh, tradition uh, and uh, teaches us how to discern and understand the temptations that were going to come at the end of time, at the, in, the, in the end times. He says, my child, know that in the last days, hard times will come. As the apostle says, behold, due to poverty and piety in churches, the heresies and schisms will appear. And as the Holy Fathers foretold, then on the thrones of hierarchs and in monasteries, there will be no men tested and experienced in the spiritual life. Wherefore, the heresies will spread everywhere and deceive many. The enemy of the humankind will, of mankind, will act skillfully, if possible, leading the chosen ones to heresy. He will not begin by discarding the dogmas of the Holy Trinity, divinity in Jesus, of Jesus Christ, or Theotokos, but will unnoticeably start to distort the teachings of the Holy Fathers from the Holy Spirit, given by the Holy Spirit, the church teaching itself, right? Very important. In our day and age, he's saying, it's not going to be like the ancient church, where they, were, where they went right at Arianism or, or Nestorianism or Monophysism or whatever it might be. Most heresies that really shook the church in those days were about the person of Christ. It's not, they're not going to do that. They're going to subtly, cunningly, change and distort the teachings of the Holy Fathers about life in the church, the canons of the church, the way we interact with non-Orthodox, prayer with the heterodox, and many, many other things. The way can priests marry again or not if their wives die, all these kind of regulation of church life, fasting, prayer, all the rest, uh, the typicon, all these things you say, and this is where the distortion is going to, going to come from. And we've seen a tremendous amount of that activity on the part of deluded and deluding priests and hierarchs in the 20th century, 21st century.
cunning of the enemy and his this is a, I don't know if this is a typo or not, typics, I don't know what that what's it referring to, will notice a very small number of those most experienced in spiritual life. You say basically that few will understand the distortion that's going on in the church. Heretics will take over the church. Everywhere will appoint their servants, and spirituality will be neglected. It's very interesting here. I don't know. It struck me this last time I read it. He says, he didn't say heretics will distort the church. He didn't say they will leave the church. They will take people with them outside the church. He said they will take over the church. Meaning that the Orthodox will be in the church where the heretics are, 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 are over the church. The heretics will probably be, as usual, among the hierarchy and the priests, because that's where heretics usually are. Right? You don't, the old ladies don't get a huge gathering and following uh, if they're in delusion, although old ladies can fall into delusion as well, and they do. But they're not going to become leaders of heresies. They're not threats to the larger church, usually. Uh, at least I don't remember any in church history. So this is the thing. The heretics over the church. But think about that. So think about the ecclesiology of the church and how we deal with heresy. Think about this whole discussion we've been having, some of us in the Orthodox Survival Course, about the temptation on the right, the temptation to split, to cut communion, cut commemoration, and create a separate uh, parallel jurisdiction. That whole temptation on the right uh is interesting in the light of this this quote heretics will take over the church so therefore the church will be struggling against heretics who are above them sounds like that's exactly what's been happening for the last 50 years for sure 60 70 years we can go all the way back 100 years to 1920 but certainly in earnest from the days of athanagoras and also the days uh, of uh, post sergius we're having these issues of heresy and mainly among the hierarchs and theologians and it, it being a persistent problem, even though the base of the church, the faithful of the church are opposed in, in most cases, uh, the, the faithful all opposed, but it, as far as numbers go, it's a small minority uh, that leads and enacts these uh, these manipulations, these perversions, these distortions of church life. And they will point their servants everywhere and spiritual life will be neglected. This is the secularism of our day. The spiritual life is gravely neglected among many who call themselves Christians that are trying to, who say they're trying to save their soul. Their spiritual life is neglected. How many of our brothers and sisters are fasting? regularly throughout the whole life of the church. So half the year is a fast day. How many of them are praying fervently every day, have a prayer rule, get up in the morning, say the Jesus prayer, all the rest. Many don't have that guidance. They don't have the initiation. They're not, they're not, they're not doing that. So spirituality is neglected uh, in our day. So this could be totally applicable to our day. But the, but the Lord will not leave his servants without protection and in ignorance. We just talked about the providence of God in a little bit earlier, how we need to trust God's providence and not fall into that faithfulness on the right, right? It's all over. It's done. Uh, pack up, go home. Uh, the the uh, Before counsel, before any 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 conciliar decision, let's pack it up. No. He will not leave his servants without protection. He said, by the fruits, you will recognize them and strive to distinguish them from real pastors. 
Those spiritual thieves who are snatching the spiritual flock do not enter through the door into the sheepfold, but cross in the other place, as the Lord said. That is, they will enter in in a legal way with force, violence, destroying God's order. The Lord calls them criminals. And we actually talked about that about two weeks ago. Some of the um, ways in which some hierarchs came to power in the 1920s in illegal ways. Right? They were not done according to the canons and according to the tradition. And there's also ways in which people come to power today that they are in violation of and they should be disqualified from service to the church in the hierarchy or in the priesthood because of their sins, their faults. There are certain canons that disqualify people from serving in the church. Uh, certainly apostasy would disqualify one. We saw that Sergius had apostatized. He went over to the fake living church. How did he get back in and actually have authority? That was a grave error on the part of whoever, uh, or we're not really sure how that was, the details, how did that come about? But he did, and he should have never had that kind of power again. He apostatized. And that's a, uh, there's canons of the church that say as much. Those who come over and have these uh, uh, obstacles to guiding the church because of their, their past falls. Um, so that's a way of, uh, of someone illegally taking power, essentially, in, from the, in the church. Uh, truly, their real duty is persecution of true pastors. Their imprisonment for without that the spiritual flock may not become captured. So he's actually saying that the bishops will persecute true pastors, put them in prison so that they can capture the flock. You'll see going forward as we look at the catacomb church, we look at the uh, Sergius and that whole post-1927 reality that this is applicable. Therefore, my son, when you see in the church mocking of the divine act, teaching of the Holy Fathers, uh, the God-established order, all these things are being mocked and undermined, know that the heretics have already appeared. Even though for some time they might hide their evil intentions and will undoubtedly deform the divine faith to better succeed by deceiving and tricking the inexperienced. So they're deforming, they're not attacking per se, they're deforming, distorting. This is what we see in our day, a distortion, a perversion, a corruption, (coughs) excuse me, of the life of the church. And and there's a double-tongued, two-faced reality among certain hierarchy in the church today. They're they're talking one orthodox game when they go to places like Marathos, and they're talking a whole different game when they go to places where they are talking to the powers that be, they're talking to the worldly, they're talking to the, to the secularized. They will persecute not only the pastors, but also the servants of God. For the devil who is directing the heresy cannot bear living in divine order. So when you see divine order, that's a sign that there is a, a blessing that God Uh, ordained uh, reality, and this is what the church has. It has its order. When you see the undermining of that and the confusion, that's not a sign of God's work. Like wolves in a sheepskin, they will be recognized by their vainglorious nature, love for lust, lust for power. Those will be betrayers, causing hatred and malice everywhere. And therefore the Lord said that one will recognize them by their fruits, 
True servants of God are meek, brother-loving, and obedient to the church, the order, the traditions of the church. If you see a cleric or a bishop or a priest or a theologian saying, you know what, we can rewrite, we can redo, we can renovate, we can, uh, we can change all these things, it's a sign that they're not true servants of God. It's not how the servants of God approach things. They have great awe before the holy tradition. Uh, one can see it again with the illegal anti, anti-Orthodox ecclesiology, the, the anti-ecclesiological, proper ecclesiological stance of those who, in a piecemeal way, brought division in the church to the change of the calendar. The problem there was a dis, uh, a, a pride, arrogant approach to church unity and also church tradition and order. This was disorderly. Whatever they, whatever they want to say that they, they pastorally it needed to happen, whatever, whatever jurist justifi- justification that certainly will be served for that kind of change and other changes that have come about, the, the dropping of the anathemas, for instance. It was disorderly. It brought in disorder. And this is a sign that they're not of God when they undermine and create division among the Orthodox. Never should have happened. Never had the blessing of God. That division between Orthodox people, not between the, the future old calendars groups, mainly or even only, but even within the Orthodox world, we have majority of people on the old calendar still because of Russia and, and Serbia and Jerusalem and Georgia. Those are all on the old calendar. And then you have those on the new calendars. You have, you have a disorder. That's not of God. At that time, monks will endure great pressure from the heretics, and the monastic life will be mocked. Monastic families will be impoverished. The number of monks will reduce. The ones remaining will endure violence. These haters of the monastic life, who merely have the appearance of piety, will strive to draw monks on their side, promising them protection and worldly goods and comforts but threatening with exile to those who do not submit. This could definitely be uh, seen as fulfillment within the uh, post-27, certainly, if not even earlier, period of things in the Russian church. From these threats, the weak at heart will be very humiliated, tormented. If you, see, if you live to see that time, rejoice. For at that time, the faithful, not possessing other virtues, will receive wreaths merely for standing in faith. According to the word of the Lord, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my heavenly Father. So this is something we've commemorated in other lectures, but it's very important here coming from a great saint, a, new, uh, uh, a uh, confessor of the faith, uh, a great elder. Uh, if you live in that time, rejoice, he says, because just confessing the faith, you will have a great reward. That is uh, a great consolation for us because let's be honest, we are weak, we are inundated, we are distracted ad nauseum, and a spiritual life cannot be built on that kind of foundation. So what do we have to show for us in these last days, these, these, these apocalyptic days that we live? Well, we are struggling to remain faithful and confess the faith and not follow after the innovators and the heretics and all the rest that have come in into the life of the church. 
Fear the Lord, my son. Don't lose the received wreath, not to be rejected by Christ, into the outer, utter darkness and internal suffering. Bravely stand in the faith, and if needed, joyfully endure persecutions and other troubles, for then the Lord will stand by you. And holy martyrs and confessors will joyfully watch at your struggle. What could be more joyful than to be counted a part, uh, as a part of the choir of the martyrs and confessors? What, what greater joy can someone have that they laid down their life, they, they gave their life in their deeds and words, but also their, the end of their life to Christ? So indeed, he says, rejoice. But in these days, woe to be monks, woe, woe to monks tied to possessions and riches. Of course, that applies to all Christians, right? Not just monks. Woe to all Christians, but especially monks, who for the sake of love of comfort agree to subjugate themselves to the heretics. They will lull their conscience saying, we will save the monastery and the Lord will forgive us. Unfortunate and blinded they are, uh, they are not even thinking that through heresies and heretics, the devil will enter the monastery, and then it will no longer be a holy monastery, but bare walls from which grace will depart from them forever. But God is more powerful than the devil and will never abandon his servants. There will always be true Christians till the end of time, but they will choose lonely and deserted places. Do not fear troubles, but fear pernicious heresy, for it drives out grace and separates from Christ. Wherefore Christ commanded, consider the heretic as, and let him be unto thee as a heathen man and publican. So it is absolutely a matter of soteriology of salvation. This is one of the great lies of the heresy, the pan-heresy of ecumenism, is they come and say that... Um, Friendship with heresy and those who are unrepentant in their heresy, the various heretical groups, is not an obstacle to friendship with God. It's not an obstacle to the grace of God, but the Holy Fathers teach otherwise. Heresy is the most uh, dangerous of all sicknesses and evils and temptations in the church. For it drives out grace. Without grace, without Christ, we can do nothing. We are we are to be spit out. We ought to be left aside. So is there anything greater than union with Christ? No. Is there anything worse than separation from Christ? No. Not even death. So people, people have death as the worst possible thing. No, actually, it's not true. Death could be a wonderful thing. It could be the ticket to paradise. We just saw a few examples. Nuns and monks and bishops. And God arranging for their martyrdom truly preparing them and arranging for their martyrdom. And he goes on and he finishes his, his text. And so strengthen yourself, my son, in the grace of Jesus Christ, with joy hasten to the confession and enduring and endure the suffering like Jesus Christ, good soldier who said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the wreath of life or the crown of life. To him be the Father and the Holy Spirit, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the honor, glory, out of the ages. Amen. All right, so that is a phenomenal text. So instructive. It gives us the tools to discern, to understand, and to judge. We need to read that 
and then come back three months later and reread that, and then come back again another three months and go on rereading this so that we are mindful. Now, this doesn't mean that everything he says here is going to be applicable to our particular situation, our particular life, or our bishop or anything. So please do not undiscerningly take this and use it as some kind of bludgeon, all right? So that's that would be terrible. That's not what the saint's trying to do. It needs a great amount of discernment to apply the words. He gives us the principles, however, and that's what we need to digest thoroughly and to uh, be able to regurgitate when necessary, right? The principles. He doesn't give us the application, which is very difficult at times to apply and needs a lot of discernment. All right, so, but it's a process. Experience and following the Holy Fathers and listening to their prophetic utterances, together those two things will produce uh, discernment. Experience and obedience to the Holy Fathers brings about discernment. All right, now we're going to see another video. This is an amazing story, an amazing story. Um, you may have already seen this. It's worth listening to again. This is coming from a, a, a Romanian priest who was taken prisoner during World War II and sent to this uh, one-time monastery, turned into a prison. Uh, he was a prisoner of war. He was on the side of the, uh, not the Allies, but the Axis. So he was taken prisoner along with other Romanians. I don't know if he was a priest at the time or not. I don't remember this. Uh, if you get a priest later, I don't think it was mentioned in the text, but he, I think he was at least a very pious man at the time. So he's in this prison, this former monastery, now prison camp. He's got thousands and thousands of people uh, that are in prison with him. <clears throat> and as you'll see, he discovers this amazing reality, this amazing martyrdom of 11,000 monk martyrs and an incorrupt bishop. He narrates this. And it's been translated, it's been in Greek and, and uh, other languages. So let's listen uh, and just be in awe of God's providence and love. <coughs> in 1918, communists abolished the Ornaki Monastery and transformed it into a detention center for 11,000 monks drawn from all Russian monasteries. There were also parish priests along with higher monks, and they had a bishop with them. The same year, a military communist delegation came from Moscow and asked the monks, will you serve on our side or not? You have 24 hours to answer. The bishop replied, it is too long until tomorrow. We'll give you the answer in 10 minutes. Then the bishop turned to the monks and asked them, brothers, now you have the great opportunity to become martyrs for Christ. Do you want to unite with the communists or to give your life for Christ to be numbered with the martyrs? Do not be afraid. Christ is with us. He calls us to himself. And all replied with a single voice, we want to die for Christ. And so all were shot in the head with a machine gun. They executed more than 300 a day for a month. 300 a day for it every day for one month, dumping their bodies in a ravine in the yard of the monastery. Some were digging the pit, then they, in turn, were shot, and others replaced them until all were shot. The bishop was the last to be shot and was buried sitting on a small chair among the other monks. That was a massacre of Russian monks under the communists, unique in the history of the contemporary church. 
No one ever said a word about it. Nothing was ever written. I, Father Dimitri Bijanam, and the last Orthodox priest alive who is an eyewitness of the discovery of the relics in Ornaki, well, I was a prisoner between 1942 and 1948. How the holy relics of these martyrs were discovered. In the camp were 14,000 POWs from Stalingrad, Romanians and Germans and others. This is 1942 now, 40, 45, 46. We needed toilets. And the commander of the camp gave an order to dig a large trench in the ravine behind the church. During the work, the prisoners unearthed the bones of the monks dumped into the ravine. Some Romanian soldiers came to me and said, Father, oh, he was a priest, forgive me, I didn't notice Father Bijan, we found a trench full of bodies of monks shot in the head, piled one above the other, all dressed in black monastic habits. What should be done? Dig further with care and see what you can find. After a while, they came back to me. Father Bijan, we found an old priest in corrupt sitting on a stool. You can see that he was shot in the head. He has around the neck a chain with a cross and an icon of the metal, the image of the mother of God. Brothers, I said to them, Go to the commander and report to him, this is a miracle. We cannot make toilets here. I recognized the old priest was a bishop because he was wearing an engolpio, panagia, an icon of the mother of God. Unfortunately, the cross was stolen by the soldiers digging the trench and cut it and distributed the parts among themselves. I saved the engolpio, but it was taken afterwards by the commander. I called him to the site and he said, all he said was, why is this sitting on a stool? Take him out and bury him somewhere else like all the other people. And he put me in charge. And I went to the camp shop and we made a solid oak chair. I seated him on the chair and attached him firmly to the back. I sprinkled him and other bodies with holy water. Then we buried him like a bishop next to a well in the monastery yard. He was a true saint. In that well, the water bursts from time to time according to the worthiness of those who come to take water. The commander ordered that a solid oak box be made to protect the body. I witnessed a miracle. When I, when I took him out from among the other bodies, his body stretched out as if he had just died then. Our Father Dimitri learned about the martyrdom of these holy saints. In 1918, a Rasafor monk from Ornaki managed to escape and was a miller in the Taiga the, on the river. His name was Father Theodot. He furnished me with all the details about the mass execution. He was the only survivor. I do not know how he managed to escape. He was from the region. Maybe he hid somewhere. How Father Dimitri Benjana met Father Theodot. One severe winter, we were taken to cut wood from a forest north of the camp. We were guarded by the Chasovi, in other words, the armed civilian guard. As I was straying alone through the forest, I came to a small house on the bank of a small river. I knocked on the door. An old bearded man opened the door and asked me who I was and what was I doing there. I told him that I was a prisoner from the Ornaki and that I was a Romanian Orthodox priest. For nearly 30 years, he had not seen a priest. He trusted me, and I found out that he was a simple monk. He knew the entire Tipicon. He was in possession of a book which he followed for his canon in the evenings after work. He was very pious. I don't think that he, was, that he is still alive today. 
He was always kneeling every time I went there, urging me to kneel with him. He was saying everything he knew. I helped him. We managed to get a book of hours from a Russian. Are you an Orthodox priest? He asked me, and I started and started crying. Yes, I confirmed. Then I will tell you a great secret. I am a monk from the Ornaki Monastery. My name is Theodot, and in 1918, when I was young, I fled one night to escape the killings. I built then this house and the mill. I never saw a priest since I escaped from Ornaki. Then I, I then told him how we discovered the bodies of the monks shot, and I asked him what happened there. With all these monks, he told me crying, when they seized power, the atheist communists rounded up about 11,000 monks and priests from all the monasteries. I was among them. And then some mounted soldiers came and asked us, do you want to come with us? But the bishop and all the monks answered, we, want, we won't come with you because you are atheists and we want to die for Christ. I managed to escape and they put them to dig a big trench hundreds of meters long and shot them all in one month, the bishop being the last. They alone dug the trench. They alone were covering it. But they were full of faith in Christ and were living in fasting and prayer until the atheists killed them all. So, this is Ornaki and the great Mystery, uh, the great mystery of being corrupt bishop, the great mystery of 11,000 monks going to their martyrdom. How many other stories perhaps never made it? How many other stories, amazing stories, are yet to be told? God knows. But we have this story of a tremendous, uh, that reminds us of the ancient church. We read in the Synaxarian, thousands of upon thousands of people being slaughtered and martyred in churches and places around the empire in the first 300 years. This differs in nothing from that time period and that great sacrifice of the ancient church. So God help us to be imitators of these great saints. Another great story, another amazing story of the martyr who was beheaded in 1918 and in 1930. A great miracle occurred in the life of the holy priest, Father Timothy. He was executed and beheaded, but by an act of God, his head immediately grew back onto his neck. And this is how it happened. Father Timothy Strelkov lived in the village of Mikhailovka in the Urals, 12 kilometers from the regional center of Duvan. This deeply religious priest was the youngest brother of another priest, Father Theodore Strelkov who went eastward with the army of Admiral Kolchak and died there in the city of Harbin. In the summer of 1918, according to live witnesses of this greatest miracle, a well-known priest, Father Timothy, and, and the, uh, was arrested by the Reds on the eve of Trinity Day, and he was sentenced by this, that same day to execution as a fearless confessor of Christ. During the night, he was taken out on foot, from the Milkayovka village under mounted guard in the direction of Duvan. A huge crowd of people accompanied their beloved pastor. Mixed in the crowd with the crowd were also representatives of the new regime. And thus some people sorrowed and cried while others rejoiced and triumphed. Despite the very late hour, the crowd did not disperse. They came up to Mitchell Fanovka village and at this very point, everyone was ordered to return. 
all the people went back, including the mounted guard. Only one guard remained, and only Matushka, the priest's wife, was allowed to go with them. Three kilometers before reaching the regional center of Duban, they left the road and turned into a swamp overgrown with bushes and went up a little hill. The sun was beginning to rise. Trinity Day was dawning. The accompanying guardsman rode on his horse, while in front of him walked the priest who had been sentenced to death. His tearful Matushka walked beside him. Father Timothy prayed tearfully, ardently, asking God to give him strength for his forthcoming martyrdom. He also humbly thanked the Lord for such a blessed end. Suddenly, the guard seized his saber, raised it on high, and then brought it down on the priest's neck. The martyr's head was cut off, and it fell down as though smitten. Matushka screamed and ran away in terror. Father Timothy himself only remembered the moment when the blade hit the, of the sabers flashed over his head, and nothing more. The blow was direct and strong. The head did not roll away, but fell down together with the body. Father Timothy could not remember what happened to him afterwards, but he came to his senses lying on his back. Meanwhile, the guard galloped after Matushka, caught, caught up with her, jumped down from his horse, and took her wedding ring away from her. Afterwards, he galloped back to the murdered Father Timothy, leaned down, and struck him once more on the head with his saber. The priest's arm was lying over his face, cleaving both his cheek and arm. Meanwhile, Matushka coming into Mukhayovka described how Father Timothy had been murdered before her eyes. The peasants took a cart and went away to pick up his body. But how great was their amazement and joyous awe at the incredible miracle performed by God over the priest when they found him alive, all covered with blood and with a scar around his entire neck, testifying to the fact that the head had been cut off and had been incredibly and miraculously healed. When the blood was washed off, they found a completely healed scar all around the neck in the form of a vivid red thread. There was no inflammation. Father Timothy showed this scar to all those around him. He was brought back as though dead, covered up with branches, to his father, Porfiri, who lived outside the village in a mill house. Here the martyr hid for a month and a half in his father's home and then left the area and remained hiding for another 12 years after which he suffered a second death for Christ. But during this period, the Lord God performed yet another miracle in Father Timothy's life. He remained in hiding, going from place to place. At one point, he came to a monastery in the Urals and asked the abbot for temporary lodgings. He said he was a priest and showed his priestly cross. The abbot gave him permission to stay, but this was noticed by outsiders. A local commission arrived and began checking out the residents of the monastery according to the official list. How many monks do you have in your monastery? The chairman asked the abbot. Thirty-two, he replied. They put up the tables and began counting. Father Timothy, immersed in prayer, stood with all the other monks near the tables, leaning on the stove. Everyone was checked. Thirty-two exactly. How amazing, said the commission. But Father Timothy, who was just standing next to the table, was not found, as though they couldn't see him. After the Czechists left, the abbot gathered the brothers and told them about the miracle of God's mercy and served a prayer of thanksgiving for a dual miracle, not only in the case of the priests, but also for the deliverance of the monastery from inevitable death. After this occurrence, Father Timothy left those parts and lived secretly at the Sim station near Ufa. Here, he daily served the divine liturgy in a home church until his arrest, his last arrest and death in 1930. In the winter of that year, he was finally discovered. He was thrown into prison and tortured terribly. 
In the end, he was taken out in a car together with another priest into the woods where he was executed a second time. Once again, he was beheaded and then cut up into small pieces. Once again, he was beheaded. Amazing, amazing, amazing stories from the field of martyrdom in Russia. We're just scratching the surface, brothers and sisters. How many treasures are waiting for you? How many treasures await you? How many, how many moments of inspiration and tears await all of us with the lives of the new martyrs? One more, two more, actually, before we go. This is about nuns who, who, who refuse to destroy the icons. <clears throat> many monastics were drawn, were drowned in the River Don in Karklov. And a nun tells the following story. It took us all outside the monastery walls, onto the riverbank. There, some icons from our monastery were lying about in disorder. One of the Czechists explained to us, any nun who takes an icon and throws it into the river will be allowed to live. But any who refuses to do so will herself be thrown into the river and drowned. Let me pause here and remind people of the great, the very similar story from the Church of Georgia in Tbilisi, where not a few nuns, but thousands upon thousands of Orthodox Christians were asked to do a similar thing by the Persians. The Persians had come to Georgia, and they had enslaved the Georgians for a time, and they had everyone in the city come out to the, to the bridge, and they laid down icons on the bridge, and they said, walk on the icons, dis disdain the icons, and you will live. Otherwise, you will be immediately murdered. Your head will be cut off. You'll be thrown into the river. And thousands upon thousands did that. One, we, we learn in the story, one particular young man, they whispered to him, the soldiers, spit to the left. And we will act as if you did disdain the icons and we will not kill you. And so he did that, thinking that, well, if he's not going to disdain the icons, he's not going to sin. And when he did that, they all screamed and yelled and for joy, ah, oh, we've got him. You see, he's one of us. And he immediately understood that even the appearance of denying our Lord is a betrayal. And he repented and joined the martyrs with him. So we have such stories from the ancient church, from the church in Georgia. Uh, this is just one more in the long line of great uh, martyrs in the church, refusing to disdain the holy things. Let's remember that. Refusing to disdain the holy thing. Remember that in our day. It took us out of the monastery. Sorry. And they began to call out the names, right? If you do not, you'll be drowned, they said. They began to call out the names of the sisters. The first to be thrown into water and drowned was our abbess. And many following her preferred a blessed death. They were bound, thrown into the water, and sank like stones. Many of them were reciting prayers, calling on God for help. Others went as if to a feast. But I, the person, this is one of the nuns, telling us the story. But I, wretched sinner, 
was terrified of death and went so far as to violate the holy icon of the mother of God and child. With my own hands, I threw it into the water in order to live. But instead of life, I received eternal death. Not only in the age to come, but also here on earth. Do you think I'm alive? I'm living my death. I'm tormented every day, every hour, every minute. But those who received martyrdom for Christ, what a blessed state they went to eternal life. Woe to me, woe to me. And no one will understand except those who have refused a martyr's crown. And growing through the villages, this nun told the story of her great sin, her denial of God, while glorifying the feet of the martyrs. And one last life uh, story from the saints that will set us up for, I think, next week's uh, lecture. As we move on, we look at the, the time of Sergianism. This is uh, two-part, both of St. Tikhon, and then the second part is further on post-Sergianism. Uh, There's a little eight minutes, so bear with us, but this will be the last, and then we'll open it up to questions. So if you have questions, you want to ask questions, this is the time to write them and give them to, to our uh, um, to submit them there to John and others. All right, first story. In February 1922, the Bolsheviks declared that the local Soviets should seize all the valuables from the churches. This led to bloody clashes between the local Soviets and believers. Many Orthodox suffered martyrdom defending the church from sac sacrilege, and many were brought to trial. On May 6th, the patriarch, St. Tikhon himself, was placed under house arrest in the Srotskoy Podvori, being accused of resistance to the requisitioning of church valuables under Article 62, 119 of the Criminal Code. We know about this. We've, we've heard about this. But the story, I don't think we've heard yet here in this course. At one such trial, that of 54 in Moscow in May, the patriarch appeared as a witness for the defense. The president said to him, do you consider the state's laws obligatory or not? Patriarch said, yes, I recognize them to the extent that they do not contradict the rules of piety. All right, let's think about that in our day and age. Those laws, those laws that were passed, did they contradict the rules of piety? Well, they shut down the churches. They forbid people to in the, in the, in the temple to congregate, perhaps. Or perhaps there were even rules of piety, rules of impiety implemented instead of rules of piety. So we have here an example that is applicable for our day. He says, yes, insofar as they do not contradict the rules of piety. And the president answers, you ordered that your appeal calling on the people to dis disobey the authorities, this was the statement on church values that he issued, should be read out to the whole people. <clears throat> Patriarch says, the authorities well know that in my appeal, there was no call to the people to resist the authorities, but only to preserve their holy things. And in the name of their preservation to ask the authorities to allow their value to be paid in money and by helping their starving brothers in this way to preserve their holy things. Well, this call will cost the lives of your faithful servants. St. Tikhon was told by the president. At this point, Patriarch Tikhon cast a loving look at the priest of the bench 
of the accused and said, I always said and continue to say that I alone am guilty of everything. And this is only my Christian army obediently following the commands of the head sent to her by God. But if a redemptive sacrifice is necessary, if the death of innocent sheep of the flock of Christ is necessary. And at this point, the voice of the patriarch was raised and it became, an, it became audible in all the corners of the huge law, a hall. And he himself, as it were, grew tall as addressing the accused. He raised his hands and blessed them loudly and distinctly pronouncing the words, I bless the faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ to go to torment and death for him. The accused then fell on their knees. Both the judges and the prosecutors fell silent. The session did not continue that evening. In the morning, the verdict was pronounced. Eighteen priests were to be shot. When they were being let out of the hall, they began to chant, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. And to those in the tombs bestowing life. In our second story, concerning the two catacomb priests who resisted the Bolshevik devil, quote-unquote. Yuri Belov writes, in 1980, In prison I met some Orthodox priests. Most of them were true Orthodox catacombs priests, two of whom were unforgettable, Father John and Father Michael. They did not recognize the satanic authorities and did not want to hide that fact. On the contrary, they went along the Volga, from village to village, preaching that salvation would come to the world only from struggle with the Bolshevik devil. They called on people not to work for the Bolsheviks, to go into the woods, not to serve in the Soviet army, not to read satanic newspapers and books, since through them and through the cinema and the radio, a great deception comes. Krivushchev is now, in 1980 that was, serving his last 10-year sentence at the age of 80. Kalinin is, all, is also is not yet free. He is about 63. If a Czechist or just a warder appeared, he would make the sign of the cross all around him and proclaim, get out Satan, out of my sight, Bolshevik filth. He absolutely refused to talk with them and said that if everyone rejected these commissars, they would not remain in power even for a year. But boldness, what courage, what amazing fortitude. Number three, concerning the lives of the wanderers of the Russian church uh, in the catacombs. Eugene Vagin, this is from Russian Catacomb Saints by I am Andrei Vazirov Rose. He states, for the most part, in accordance with their religious concepts, they live without documents. They do not handle Soviet money, <clears throat> on both of which they see the seal of Antichrist. Both by the character of their mission and out of practical necessity, they are obliged constantly to be wandering, to go from place to place, to hide from the authorities. And constantly everywhere they find people who actively sympathize with them, who help them materially, hide them in the case of need, participate in common prayers. This is the good, that good soil in which the seed of preaching is cast, which brings forth a hundredfold for every word. This more than anything else disturbs the atheist authorities. They, this is evidently why the show trial was staged in Alma Alta at the beginning of the 1960s against a group of true Orthodox Christian wanderers headed by Mina Bogotrev, described in Soviet journal Science and Religion 1964. 
whom I met in the Mordovo camp in 1968-69. These are stories coming from the Catacomb Church. So we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I thought it was good to end with what we will see, the development of this in the future, post-1927 and certainly in the 30s and beyond. Story four, concerning the spiritual beauty of the wilderness as related in the life of St. Gregory the Crossbearer. Now they have brought us, St. Gregory is the one speaking here, to a Soviet labor camp. But here too, they will keep us only for a few days. Here, there are also crossbearers. They will join us, and then we will be taken all the way up to the Obdorsk wilderness, where they send all the religious people who refuse to cooperate with the Soviet regime. There they throw them out into the wilderness. The hunger, the cold, the scurvy, all help the Bolsheviks to kill off their victims. But they are far from the world and closer to God. One is truly free to work upon his salvation. And God strengthens his true slaves with wondrous visions and sights. There they say, light from paradise shines. Join us, Father. Come with us to earn a martyr's crown. Among us, there are two priests, they say, from Tavir and the layman from Boronez, and of course, from other places. Father Nicholas Masich, who was with Gregory in the camp, reveals that soon after he heard these words from the saint's holy lips, they disappeared. I heard that they had indeed been sent to the Obdorsk Taiga, to the desert tundra, to the shore of the Arctic Ocean, from where there is no return. Amin. I think this is a hopefully a good representative taste of the breadth and depth of what the church has given to us in the lives of the new martyrs. So much to consider, so much to be provoked into a good uneasiness, a good uneasiness. We need that to expel the complacency, to expel, to expel the comfort to expel the ease and the, 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 the delusion of modern life. It is a drug that we live on, right? God is working to free us from that. They're going to become days of starvation, days of wars, days of persecution. And he will free us step by step from the delusion of comfort, as if we will live here forever. The utopia illusion of the Marxist and every Marxist in America or in Russia. So the days are coming that God will free us from delusions, whether we like it or not, if we are worthy to follow the holy martyrs. Thanks be to God. Oh, baby,